Okay. I thought I'd start with a little bit of, uh, I guess we could call it American history. Who likes American history? I knew you would. I, <laughs> Who's the 11th president? Don't be Googling. No. <laughs> I'm not teaching American history. Okay, okay. So James Knox Polk. Yeah. He was elected the, the 11th president of the United States in 1844. And during Polk's four years of service, he only served one, one four-year period, it was said of his accomplishments that of all the American presidents, only George Washington had a stronger record of success while in office. Polk's wife, the former Sarah Childress, became the first presidential wife to serve as her husband's secretary. Did you know that? Sarah was a very strict religious woman. And she banned dancing and card playing and all alcoholic drinks from the White House. But something else perturbed her. President Polk was only five feet six inches tall. And he would enter a room full of dignitaries, perhaps even in the White House, and go unnoticed for several minutes until someone would say, oh, the president's here. In an effort to solve this problem of dishonor and disrespect, Sarah requested a song be played each time the president entered a room in order to announce his presence. And someone chose what we now call hell to the chief. Since the days of Polk, it has, been, it has announced the, present, the presence of every president to call people's attention to Did you know that? Did you know that, Dave? Okay. We are continuing through our series of the Ten Commandments. Last week, we looked at the the first commandment, which tells us who to worship. And this morning, we are looking at the second commandment, which tells us how. We are to worship. Now, to begin this morning, I I thought I would introduce this commandment with a well-known story. So if you have your Bible or iPhone, whatever that might be, turn to Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3. 
This should be a very familiar story to you. Daniel chapter 3. Are you there? So let me set the story up, okay? The Babylonians attacked Jerusalem in September 605 B.C. And it was on this occasion that the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar, ordered that the best and the brightest of Judah, the royalty, the cream of the crop, be taken back to Babylon. Daniel and his three teenage friends were among those who were kidnapped, presumably so that they could use their influence and their talents and their skills for future leadership positions in Babylon. Sometime later, Nebuchadnezzar made an image that was 90 feet high and nine feet wide, making it really tall and really skinny. I'm not sure if it was something like uh, the Washington Monument, or maybe it was just a really distorted statue of himself. No one, no one really knows. But it must have been an amazing sight to see because it was 90 feet tall and, oh, by the way, it was made of gold. It was set up a few miles south of Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar summoned all of the rulers and all of the officials, likely thousands of people, to attend a ceremony to dedicate the image, and to swear their allegiance to him. But for whatever reason, Daniel was not there. Okay, Daniel was not there. At this ceremony, it was proclaimed that when the band played... All the people were to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Since no God was mentioned associated with this image, and they worshipped many false gods, it would appear that Nebuchadnezzar wanted to start something new. Maybe to unify to people where he was the religious head. Now, at this ceremony, it was clearly explained that if anyone did not fall down and worship the image, the penalty was sudden death. Sudden death. Specifically, they would be cast in a furnace of blazing fire. So you have a picture? Okay. Well, at the ceremony... The band played. And on cue, 
thousands of people fell to the ground just like they were told to do. Everyone bowed down to the image except for these three young Jewish men, the friends of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They alone were left standing among the thousands in attendance. Surely these three stood out for standing up. And it was reported to the king. So let's pick up where the story continues in verse 13. So Daniel Daniel chapter 3, verse 13. Let me read. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and anger, gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then these men were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, and bagpipe, and all kinds of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made very well. But if you do not worship, you will immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. And what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? Ooh. Let's stop right there. The king was told about the disobedience of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he seems to have been taken aback that these three refused to bow. So the king explains the rule again, just in case they missed it the first time. Essentially, it's bow or burn. That's it. It's bow or burn. Adding, there is no God who can deliver you out of my hands. In that statement, Nebuchadnezzar is placing himself above all gods. In essence, saying, I am more powerful than any god, so worship me and my image. That sounds like something we went through in Revelation, doesn't it? Revelation 13, bowing down to an image of the Antichrist. Well, these three young men have something to say to the king. Look at verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, 
we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden idol that you have set up. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego make no attempt to defend themselves, do they? Or give excuses. Instead, they respectfully say that their God can deliver them from the fire. But even if he chooses not to, they would still honor him. They had no doubt in God's ability to deliver them. But they also understood the outcome was totally in God's hands. Whatever God did or did not do was up to him. For they understood that God is sovereign. He has a purpose for what he does and does not do. And his ways are not their ways. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stood their ground. And they refused to take advantage of this second chance to bow down, offered by the king. Well, Nebuchadnezzar was already furious with them. And now he completely loses his mind. Look at what happens in verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with wrath. And his facial expression was altered toward Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He answered by giving orders to heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. He commanded certain valiant warriors who were in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in order to cast them into the furnace of blazing fire. Then these men were tied up in their trousers, their coats, their caps, and their other clothes, and were cast into the midst of of the furnace of blazing fire. For this reason, because the king's command was urgent and the furnace had been made extremely hot, the flame of the fire slew those men who carried up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's kind of funny, but it's not. But these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell into the midst of the fire, blazing fire, still tied up. Let's stop right there. This is pretty much self-explanatory. Out of rage, just complete rage, 
orders were given to increase the heat of the furnace. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were tied up and they were tossed into the fiery furnace by soldiers. We're told the furnace was so hot that the soldiers who were standing by it after tossing the three into it were killed by the intense heat. So that should be the end of the story. If those outside the furnace died, surely, most certainly, those inside the furnace must have died. Right? That makes sense. Well, it's not what happened. It's not the end of the story. In fact, it's kind of just getting started. It's just getting good. Look at verse 24. Then Nebuchadnezzar, the king, was astounded and stood up in haste. He said to his high officials, Was it not three men we cast bound into the midst of the fire? They replied to the king, Certainly, O king. He said, Look, I see four men loosed and walking about in the midst of the fire without harm. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the furnace of blazing fire. He responded and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out, you servants of the Most High God, and come here. This is crazy. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the midst of the fire. The satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's high officials gathered around and saw in regard to these men that the fire had no effect on the bodies of these men. Nor was the, uh, the hair of their head singed, nor were their trousers damaged, nor had the smell of fire even come upon them. Stop right there. That must have been something to see. Everyone expected Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to be engulfed in flames and burned to a cinder like charcoal. But here they are walking around and the only thing that is burned up by the fire were the bonds that they were tied up with. And the soldiers who tied them up. That's all that's burned. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were doing well. They were just out for a stroll in the furnace, walking in the fire. And oh, by the way, they had company. A fourth person joined them in the fire. And we're not told who this fourth person is. 
Although Nebuchadnezzar describes him like a son of the gods. From this passage, the identity of this fourth person really can't be determined. However, some suggest it could be an angel. And others believe this is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. There are several times in the Old Testament where it is believed Jesus appeared. Appeared before Bethlehem. But whoever it was, whoever it was, whether it be Jesus or an angel, we know this for sure. There was another in the fire. They were not alone. Verse 28. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who put their trust in him, violating the king's command and yielded up their bodies so as not to serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree that any people, nation, or tongue that speaks anything offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses reduced to a rubbish heap. Inasmuch as there is no other God who is able to deliver in this way. Then the king caused Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to prosper in the providence of Babylon. I love that story. A story that likely served as a reminder to God's people who were in captivity in Babylon for 70 years that God may not rescue us from the fire, but He can rescue us in the fire. He may not rescue us from the fire, but He can surely rescue us in the fire. The fire. God is still faithful to his people even in their captivity. And he is able to deliver those who put their trust in him. And the only reason we have this story is because three young Jewish men honored their God. The one true God. They did not fall to the ground and worship the image because everyone else was doing it. They didn't compromise and bow down intending to somehow rationalize or justify their behavior. They didn't look for an excuse or a loophole to get out of the fire. 
Instead, they knew God's will. They knew God's moral standards given in the Ten Commandments. And they set their hearts on obeying God rather than Nebuchadnezzar. Last week, we looked at the first of the Ten Commandments. Where God told His people... You shall have no other gods before me. In other words, you shall have no other gods in my face. None beside me, none after me, and none except for me. And surely, the first commandment applies to our story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But so does the second commandment. So, if you have your Bible, turn to Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 through 6. Exodus 20, verses 4 through 6. And as a reminder, God is speaking to all the Israelites who are standing at the foot of Mount Sinai. And God tells His people, beginning in verse 4, You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children. On the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. But showing loving kindness to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. This second commandment speaks about idolatry. Ironically, one of the sins that led to the captivity of God's people in Babylon in the first place. Now before we can understand what idolatry is, I think we first have to define what an idol is, okay? Not American Idol. That's a TV show. Okay. The dictionary defines an idol as an image or a material object representing a deity to which religious worship is addressed. I think we have all seen movies and documentaries and pictures where people are worshiping some sort of religious object like a statue or a shrine. And for the most part, we might feel pretty good about ourselves for none of us would ever imagine 
bowing down before a carved piece of wood or stone, right? I can't imagine any of us doing that. But that's not the only definition given in the dictionary for an idol. Another part reads that an idol is any person or thing regarded with adoration and devotion. Okay, that hits a little closer to home now, doesn't it? Because we are talking about matters of the heart there. And our hearts can worship just about anything we value. So then at its core, an idol is anything we value that takes our devotion from God. An idol is a substitute, a replacement that steals our hearts away from God. The second commandment forbids idolatry. The worship of anything other than God and prohibits the creation of any man-made image that might lead us to bow down, even in our hearts, to worship and serve it. This can be applied in a couple of ways. First, this speaks to the worship of false gods and their idols. And secondly, maybe more importantly to us, it speaks to the worship of the right God in the wrong way. And in that context, some have taken this command to prohibit any kind of image, such as a painting of Jesus or a picture of a dove to represent the Holy Spirit, or any symbol like a cross, claiming it is idolatry. But that's not what God is saying here. This has nothing to do with artistic expression. Rather, it's about worship. It's about making an image that will be worshipped. For example, over to my left is a wooden cross. Everybody see that wooden cross? Is that an idol? Are we as a church committing idolatry? If we worship that cross, and there are people who do, if we worship that cross... That is idolatry. But if we worship the Savior who once hung on that cross, then it is not. That makes sense? Here's my Bible. There are people who worship the Bible. If I worship the Bible, it is idolatry. Okay? If I worship the Bible, it is idolatry. If I worship the God it speaks about, 
then it is not. Do you understand the difference? Do you see how careful, how careful we must be even with Christian objects? Just as Jesus has to be the object of our faith, He also has to be the object of our worship. And there can be absolutely no other substitutes. I hope you get that. The Apostle Paul had something to say about this as well. In Romans chapter 1, a chapter you may know, Romans chapter 1, beginning with verse 18, Paul said, Listen to this. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Let's stop there. What is Paul saying? If people will not worship God, they will find or make something else to worship. Here they turned their backs on the one true God, their creator, and have made idols of worship according to their own liking. In other words, they create counterfeit gods, substitutes. Things, listen to this, things they devote their loyalty to. Most of their time to. Most of their effort to. Most of their money to. Things they think they can control. Things that allow them to do whatever they want to do. But that does not last. For in time, their counterfeit gods control them. Since they feel like they have to have them in order to function. And to have significance and meaning 
meaningful, meaningful life. In time, in time, it's not that you have them. They have you. God knows this about us, doesn't he? He knows where idolatry leads. And that's why we are told our God is a jealous God. The Hebrew term used here for jealous is gana, which is only used in reference to God. And it expresses intense emotion that might be better translated as extreme zeal or extreme passion, where God refuses to share his people with any rival. God is jealous, not not in the sense like we are, where we become resentful and envious. But he is jealous in the fact that he wants to be in an exclusive relationship with us. It's not that God is jealous of us. He is jealous for us. And I think we can understand this. A husband and a wife does not want a rival of another man or another woman in their marriage. Who does? No husband or wife wants a rival in their marriage. That is adultery. And likewise, we commit spiritual adultery against God when we worship someone else or something else. In our passage, in Exodus chapter 20, verse 5 and 6, God tells His people He will visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and fourth generations of those who hate Me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love Me and keep My commandments. So what does that mean? This is one of those passages where you have to compare Scripture with Scripture. Okay? In Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 16, we read, Fathers shall not be put to death for their sons, nor shall sons be put to death for their fathers. Everyone shall be put to death for his own sins. So we're told here that God does not punish people directly for the sins of their ancestors. So there appears to be a contradiction, doesn't there? It appears to be a contradiction. But if you look closer, you will see it is not. The important words in Exodus chapter 20 verse 5 is this. Of those who hate me. If the descendants love and obey God, 
They will not have the iniquity of their fathers visited on them. Instead, they will receive God's loving kindness and God's mercy. On the other hand, this is important for parents and grandparents. Parents can create a cycle. We can create a cycle of hatred toward God. And if their children and their grandchildren walk in the steps of their parents in hating God, they too will be punished like their parents. Does that make sense? So let's tie this up. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego surrendered their bodies to Nebuchadnezzar. And to his fiery furnace. But not their hearts. Not their hearts. Their hearts were devoted to their God. The one true God. And they refused to bow down and worship another. They were solely devoted to the Lord. John Kenneth Galbraith, in his autobiography, A Life in Our Times, illustrates the devotion of Emily Gloria Wilson, his family's housekeeper. It had been an exhausting day. And he asked Emily... To hold all telephone calls while he took a nap. Shortly thereafter, the phone rang. President Lyndon Johnson was calling from the White House. He said, Get me Ken Galbraith. This is Lyndon Johnson. She replied, He's sleeping, Mr. President. He said not to disturb him. Well, wake him up. I want to talk with him. No, Mr. President. I can't do that. I work for him, not you. When Galbraith called the president later, He could scarcely believe what the president said. Tell that woman, I want her here in the White House. The president was impressed with her devotion to her boss. In the same way, we are to be devoted to God. Our worship and devotion belong to Him and to Him alone. No replacements, no substitutes, and no rivals. Let us pray. Father, I thank You. I thank You so much for Your moral standards. I thank You, Father, for this this commandment. It is so easy. It is so easy to create idols in our lives. To push you aside. And to worship something else. 
Father, forgive us. I pray, Lord God, that you and you alone would be our object of worship. That we would be wholly devoted to you. We would give our lives to you. We would live for you. We would obey you. We would trust you. I can go on and on, Lord. May you be honored and glorified in us. May you be lifted up and pointed out by us. You are the King of kings and Lord of lords. Only Jesus died for us. No one else. Thank you, Father. Father, I pray that you would use us. Help us to be the kind of people you want us to be. Help us to follow you. Help us to follow you, Lord. May you be honored and glorified. In Jesus' name. Amen. You know what I... Let me say this. We can all sit here spiritually speaking, I guess. I will say that spiritually speaking and go, you know what? Uh, we, we worship God, right? He is our Lord and our Savior. He's number one in our lives. We can do that, right? I would expect nothing else to come from you. But what about, I'm going to use a strange term. What about functionally? What do you devote most of your time to? Most of your energy to? Most of your effort to? Most of your devotion to? Think about that. Think about it. Let me ask it a different way. What can you not live without? Ooh. (laughs) What can you not live without? If I had my cell phone with me, I'd, my little iPhone, that, I mean, let's be serious. There are people who cannot live without their iPhone. They can't function without their iPhone. Right? Or a TV. All their time, hours and hours and hours a day, watching this electronic screen. Functionally, who is your God? That's tough, isn't it? Could you turn your iPhone off for a day and walk away from it? Could you step away from TV for a day without going into seizures? You know where I'm getting, right? That kind of tells you what you're devoted to. 
If you can't walk away from it, if you can't function in your life, if you can't make it through the day without this contraption, without this device, that should be a problem. That should be a clue that functionally, functionally, something else is a counterfeit God in your life. Am I right? And pretty soon, it's not that you have it, but it has you. I'm worshiping my iPhone. I love you, iPhone. You know what? And I'm going to give you another app. I'm just going to keep giving you other apps because we begin, we begin to serve it. It is very true. We begin to serve it. Is is technology bad? Absolutely not. That's the point I'm trying to make. It's not. But you can turn something so simple into an idol. Something that you cannot live without. Be careful with that. That's what I'm saying. And And if you just, and if you think that's the case, I just challenge you. Put it aside. Put it aside just for a day. I challenge you. Put it aside for the day. And if you're not like a junkie on the side of the road waiting for your iPhone, right? I'm being honest. You know that. That'll be a clue. That'll be a clue. Thank you for being here today. Hope I didn't offend anybody. <laughs> My bad. <laughs> I'm glad you're here today. Uh, I really am. So I hope the Lord, Lord spoke to you. Uh, as we don't, we work our way through the commandments and specifically this second commandment and, and we're going to keep working through them. But uh, I hope the Lord has spoken to your heart and, and if he's asking you to respond in a certain way, whether it's to, to you know, confess something in your chair or to, or to, to talk with me, uh, just, just respond, just respond to him in obedience. He is your Lord, right? He is your Lord. Just as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were the only three standing up in thousands. You know, because they were honoring their God. I just ask you to honor your Lord. He is your Lord, right? If you're looking for a church to join, love to have you. We are what you see, right? We are what you see, absolutely. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, let me know. I would love to introduce you to him and, uh, and lead you on this, this path. Um, to holiness and righteousness. So however the Lord leads, I just ask you to respond.